Well, welcome everyone to the virtual world of the Eastside Freedom Library. Um, we're excited to feature really not just the subject matter tonight, but also a way of producing knowledge that we try to center here at the Eastside Freedom Library. And, and that is people who are scholar activists um, and use their activism as a way to enrich their scholarship and use their scholarship as a way to inform their activism. We have a wonderful group of four people with us this evening. Um, Alan and Bobby Isaacman with their new book about Samora Michelle and Rose Brewer and August Nimps from the University of Minnesota. Of course, Alan is also from the university um, who are August and Rose are longtime scholar activists in their own right. It's really great to, to have them with us. I was excited that Alan and Bobby approached the Eastside Freedom Library and asked to do an event with the book. Um, we try when we have events around new books um, to invite other people to read the book and engage in conversation with the authors. We think it's a good way to decentralize the focus and bring more points of view and knowledge uh, to bear. Um, Alan has been uh, a longtime professor of African history at the University of Minnesota. Um, he's also been affiliated with the University of the Western Cape um, in South Africa, and I think has, has had quite an impact on the University of the Western Cape as a, an institution that's generating new ways of doing public history. Um, it's really been exciting to follow over these last decades. Um, Bobby is a longtime criminal defense attorney in Minneapolis, um, but spent time in Mozambique and working with um, the Mozambican women's movement and also taught at the University of Eduardo Mondlan in Mozambique. Um, and our two discussants tonight um, probably need no introduction, but uh, Rose Brewer is a longtime professor and activist inside and outside the academy um, in the Department of African American and African Studies at the U. Um, given the hot potato that critical race theory has become, uh, or at least discourse about critical race theory, um, I can't think of anyone I know who has been more central to the development of those ideas than Rose has, and I'm delighted that she's with us tonight. And August Nimps is also based in the Department of African and African Studies at the U, also the Department of Political Science. Um, August and I go back at least to the Hormel strike in the mid 1980s. Um, I had more hair then, um, and, and, and his was at least darker. Uh, and, and August has played an absolutely central role locally in keeping Cuba, the Cuban revolution and the issues about Cuba uh, foregrounded in our thinking and practicing activism here in the Twin Cities. Um, so it's, it's just great to have them both with us this evening. Um, I'm not gonna call any people out in the peanut gallery, but I think we have some pretty exciting people uh, joining us tonight as well. 
So the plan is that uh, Bobby and Alan are going to talk a bit about the book, uh, the context for the writing of the book, the process of how, they, how they've put it together. Um, Rose and August have both read the book recently. I think Rose has even been teaching the book. And uh, they're going to bring questions and issues to bear. Um, and then Bobby and Alan will respond a little bit, and then we'll go um, to the rest of you for input, questions, feedback. Um, this should really be a great evening. So I'm going to go on mute, and uh, my colleague Carla is going to do the tech magic, and we're going to start with Bobby Isaacman talking about Samora Michelle and the struggle against colonialism in Mozambique. Bobby. Hi. Um, good evening, everybody. Um, as you know, I'm not an academic, uh, but I have spent quite a bit of my time in Africa. Uh, we, the first time we went was during the colonial period when Alan was doing his PhD dissertation research, and we spent a year and a half roaming around the African countryside then. Um, and Alan continued to spend a lot of time in Mozambique and we went back and lived there for 17 months with our family. Our older son was then eight and our younger son was four when we went. Uh, and it was during that time that, um, that I got to know quite a few of the people of, who appear in our book. Uh, we, there was a small group of Americans, uh, less than two dozen, mm -hmm. Uh, but, uh, but we turned out to be somewhat significant because of Alan's contacts with people in the president's office. And when the Rhodesians bombed an area of Mozambique and um, using, using weaponry and, uh, and aircraft, I believe, that were American, and when, when there was some, America, some American Mercy. parts um, appeared on the scene, the Americans in our group decided that we needed to show our support for the Mozambicans and decry the uh, activities of some Americans. So we went about raising a small amount of money and we got an audience with the president during which we were able to present our money to him and to, um, to tell him how much we as Americans believed in what was going on in Mozambique and condemned the activities of the, um, of the, the, the uh, right wing people fighting with the Rhodesians uh, against independence in their country. And that was the first time that I met Samora Michelle. Over the course of the time that we were there, uh, Alan spent a good amount of time interviewing him. And we went to a number of functions where he was. We got to know his wife, Grassa Michelle, who later married Nelson Mandela, uh, and who spoke at the university with Alan a number of years ago in a what in one of their great conversations. And we all and I also got to know quite a few other people that were in relatively high positions in the government, uh, including the, the person who became president after Samora Michelle was uh, killed by the South Africans. Uh, and uh, part of what I did there was uh, I had a grant from the United Nations to write a book on the economic, on the, the uh, legal position of women in Mozambique as part of the decade 
on women. And uh, Mozambique was one of those countries that hadn't been studied. So a friend of mine and I went around the country um, with a small group of women from each area to interview people who were peasants, who were uh, in the armed forces, uh, who were shopkeepers, who were prostitutes, women in various positions. And we also interviewed people in the government about, um, about what attitudes that they had toward women and toward involvement of women in the socialist re revolution. So, th so that took up a good portion of my time, but Alan and I also traveled around the country doing some work for the government, um, which was trying to get American investment there. And during that time, we interviewed quite a few people who had been involved in the liberation struggle itself, including women who had been in what was in what was called the Destacamento Femenino, which was the women's brigade. Um, and it was very interesting to see the ways in which that changed over time, because originally they started out only being in, in support positions and basically carrying food and information around. And it was only toward the end of the war that they got involved in the actual struggle. So those were things that we talked about with various people in the government and all of that influenced the book that we decided to write later on. The writing process was, Alan did the first 20 drafts or something and then I cleaned it up. Uh, but um, now that's, that's a, a bit of an, of an overstatement, but we talked a lot about it. The, the book was conceived by both of us but Alan did the, did the initial writing. We, we went back to Mozambique a number of times and we also spent some time in the Portuguese archives getting additional materials so that we were able to present a, a fuller picture of, of Samora Michel and somewhat uh, of the forces around him. So, uh, but we are planning to write another fuller book in which um, we place him in his historical position and we look at the entire society, which is really necessary to do to understand both him and what happened in Mozambique, although we didn't have time to do that given the page limitations of this manuscript. So as Bobby was saying, we first went there in 1968 when I was doing my research and what we observed was the cruelty the exploitations of, of Africans by the Portuguese. And when we came back in 1970, I contacted Sharfuddin Khan, who was the most Fulimo liberation movement representative to the United Nations and started to work with him and became very involved in the committee for free Mozambique. And then right shortly after independence, President Michel invited, uh, I invited Bobby to come and teach in law school and me to uh, teach history. He was director of the university, actually did the invitation, but it was through the party. And then, uh, and I always say, if you want to understand what underdevelopment is, it's when an independent country has to depend on a white guy from the Bronx to teach its history because it had been suppressed by the colonial government. So African Mozambican students were only taught about Portuguese history, Portuguese rivers, et cetera. So I, I came to this book like Bobby as a partisan. And I'll be very happy to talk about the strengths and the challenges of being a partisan, being a committed uh, 
uh, an engaged scholar. So let me say a couple of words about Samor Michel. So who was Samor Michel? In the 1970s, he was probably the third most significant or prominent figure in Africa, only surpassed by Nelson Mandela, who was in jail at that point, and Walimu Nereri, Julius Nereri, who was the president of Tanzania, who had, had introduced a form of what he called African socialism, and Samora Michel. And if you want to know the popularity of Samora and how extensive it was, in 1975, when uh, Black students in South Africa in Soweto rose up against the colonial, against the apartheid regime, they walked with fists in their hand, pictures of Samora, and even though they could not speak Portuguese, they had fists in the, and they were shouting, a luta continua, the struggle continues. And throughout the whole period, though it was illegal, they had graffiti and uh, rap music about Samora. So what should we know about Samora? The first thing was that was Samora was a radical intellectual, an anti-colonial, anti-imperialist critic who became de dedicated to Marxism. But he had a very different life history than most of the prominent leaders of the times, Leopold Senghor, <coughs> Kwame Nkrumah, Julius Nereri, Milkar Cabral, all of them were university trained. Samora only had a third grade education and he was what, what Franz Fernand uh, referred, referred to as your classic revolutionary who was not uh, corrupted by urban bourgeois, bourgeois life. So Kamora, Samora was born in 1933. Uh, his father and brothers went to South to work, had to go to work in South Africa. And one of his brothers died in the mines and that lasted, left a lasting impression on him. Uh, three things were very important about his early youth. He experienced colonialism immediately as a very young boy and then uh, later on as he was maturing. He experienced it as a very young boy when in the area that he lived in Southern Mozambique uh, in, 19, in the 1930s, 1937, 38, a large number of Portuguese settlers, peasant from Northern Portugal, was, went to Mozambique by, sent by the government to establish a European presence and all the best land, including his father's was taken over by the, given to the Portuguese. Second, his father, producing wheat and other crops on less good land, some more went with him to the market and noticed that Europeans received 60% more for the same commodities. And the third thing uh, that was, was very important was that his mother and all the other women in the area were forced to grow cotton, which is a cruel and brutal crop uh, to fuel the Portuguese metropolitan textile industry. As Samora grew up, he encountered uh, uh, colonialism in a more personal way. He, uh, first of all, he, he was not allowed to go to school in the first instance, unless he promised and his parents signed off that he would convert to Catholicism. He came from a religious uh, uh, evangelical Protestant family and uh, he had to convert, which he really resented, even though he wasn't religious. Second of all, he graduated top in his class and it, it took him six years to get through third grade 
because the Portuguese insisted and the missionaries insisted that Africans were not smart enough to really appreciate Portuguese culture. Most Africans, it took 10 years. And the third thing, he wanted to be a doctor, but he was told as an African, he couldn't become a doctor. The best he could be was a male nurse or nurse. So he went to, he went to the Central Hospital, worked as a nurse where he experienced the horrific conditions of Africans living in, uh, in hospitals in segregated wards where African nurses earned less than a quarter of their European counterparts and where all Africans were treated with contempt. It was at that moment that he began to, he became really politicized and started working in the shanty towns and along the docks organizing workers. In 1963, he fled to South, uh, to Tanzania right before the P, the secret police arrested him. He was in, warned by a, a, a cult friend of his who was, who was white. Uh, let me just mention a couple of things. In 1969, he came to power and he, he sorry, two more minutes. In 1969, he became president for Limo after the Portuguese assassinated the former president. And uh, he was committed to several things. First, to armed struggle, because he, could, he believed that you could not uh, uh, transform societies. And he was very concerned about the neo-colonial arrangements that were imposed on all of Africa. Secondly, he believed in non-racism. He was absolutely committed to a non-racial society and indeed got in intense arguments with people uh, uh, from the U United States who were involved in the black, black power movement. He always said to us, if you can have black Portuguese, and those were soldiers in the Portuguese army, you could have white uh, Mozambicans. And thirdly, he was very committed to Marxism. Many people say it was transactional, that because the Soviets and the Chinese were supporting him, he had to do it. No, he chose to do it, and he came to it out of his own lived experiences. And he described to me what he arrived, what happened when he arrived in Dar es Salaam at the Filimo base, and someone gave him a text of Marx, a bridge version, and he read it and said, I've already, I'm reading this for the second time, I've ex in which he, by which he meant he ex had already experienced all these things. Now, Samora had many strengths, the power of his eyes, the power of his personality. He also had a number of weaknesses. He had an enormous ego. He believed in human agency, which was terrific, but it also led him to say, well, if we took on and beat the Portuguese, we could take on and beat the South Africans. So he terribly underestimated the power of the South Africans and the power uh, of the West. He also uh, bought into e uh, Soviet models of economic transformation and especially state control of heavy industry and agriculture, both of which were a disaster because Mozambique had, no, had two agronomists and three economists at the time of independence. So how could you have uh, transformed society? Uh, he was wonderful in terms of introducing major social reforms and he, had, and he had to be killed by the South Africans. And I say killed, he was assassinated despite the fact that the South Africans have denied it. He was assassinated because the South Africans could not have a popular black 
Marxist leader on his borders, especially one who attracted enormous support and energy among within South Africa. And so in 1966, they brought down his plane and he was killed. And so I'm going to stop there. And Bobby and I will be very happy to listen and learn. 1986, excuse me. Bobby and I want to listen carefully to Rose and August uh, criticisms and suggestions or questions. And then we would value your questions very much as well. Thank you. Thank, thank you both. Um, Rose, are you willing to go next, please? Certainly. Uh, can you hear me? Excellent. Yes. Okay. Um, this is an important discussion, and I'm pleased to be part of it. Uh, so thanks to the Eastside Freedom Library and the organizers for bringing us together to have this conversation about the complicated life and legacy of Samora Michelle. In 2016, I was able to travel to Southern Africa with Prexy Nesbitt and a group of young Black Lives Matter activists. We stayed in Mozambique several days, meeting some of the leading activists, young and veterans, who continue to resist and fight for the decolonization of Mozambique, as they told us on many occasions, a luta continua. It is so important uh, to have the larger terrain understood in this, one of the greatest liberation struggles of the 20th century, Mozambique. Alan and Bobby, Mozambique's Samora Michelle, a life cut short, provides a good deal of that context. They brought this history to us clearly, accessibly, and powerfully. I'd like to lift up a, a few components of the book that struck me deeply, but the entire volume is significant. Certainly given the current political moment, for those of us committed to transformational change, the struggle against colonialism in Mozambique is a must study for a number of reasons. Indeed, what are the lessons, the takeaways for today is something included in this evening's discussion. First, uh, I certainly appreciated uh, the detailing of Portuguese colonialism. And Alan has just uh, incorporated some of that in, into his remarks. But you know, the question for me was, what was the nature of this Portuguese system? As Alan and Bobby assert, uh, it was highly structured, organized hierarchically from the colonies general all the way down to the African masses. The specificities of what I would call the pan-European colonial project looms large in this analysis with this focus on Mozambique. Indeed, uh, given my travels there in 2016, neo-colonialism continues to create an outside impact on the country and the continent. Its seeds were planted earlier. And that's the story that Bobby and, and uh, Alan tell. Uh, I'll just quote uh, just a segment here about uh, Portuguese colonialism. Uh, they, they note because Portuguese, Portugal's own economy was underdeveloped and effectively bankrupt, it lacked the capital to make Mozambique profitable. The only resource readily available for exploitation was the colony's African population. Lisbon turned 
them into commodities through the implementation of the native labor code, which subjected all unemployed African males to forced labor. And as Alan has mentioned, uh, women were not excluded. And what a gruesome system uh, that was. No doubt this system had to be overturned. Indeed, for decades, some of the anti-colonial struggles uh, asserted this, participated in the process, and it was by the late 50s and into the 60s, some success had been achieved with independence of countries such as Ghana, Kenya, Algeria, uh, which had fought a 10-year war of liberation against France. Given this, my question was, how was Mozambique going to get free? I think the book uh, does a, a fine job of revealing this process. How do you make that revolutionary road? Samora's political education and growing radicalization had been rooted early and that was clear. And ultimately uh, it would lead to an amazing journey of struggle, guerrilla war, uh, becoming militarily astute. And this struggle was gripping. Uh, it's actually one of the, the aspects of the book uh, that I, I certainly uh, focused in on. Uh, his uh, mentoring by the revolutionary uh, Eduardo Monlani was central to his political growth and struggle. Uh, began to organize, as Alan mentioned, uh, and um, became increasingly committed to uh, armed struggle and a, a deeper form of revolutionary change. And this was the political context in which uh, in 1962, that what I would call the most important political instrument uh, for Lima was uh, put into place. Uh, this was uh, uh, the instrument that would uh, lead the revolution. And as they uh, noted in the book, the small for Lima was uh, the actual uh, political body that led Mozambique once the struggle had been achieved. Uh, of course, the book uh, covers the ascent of Samora, uh, a very, very difficult ascent. Um, and uh, the crises of struggle as well as building a new uh, nation were completely crystallized in terms of what does it really mean uh, in the context of uh, colonial struggle and a victory that was rooted in guerrilla war to build a socialist nation, a Marxist-Leninist uh, idea of what was possible, uh, which crystallized his vision and hope for his people. But uh, the stars were definitely not aligned. And this is where I diverge a bit uh, from the analysis. It seems to me, I mean, it was clear uh, that the communal agricultural and economic experiment did not succeed. Uh, but I do contend there's a more complicated story that's at play, a story that all of Africa has faced. There were bigger economic dynamics in process. The global capitalist system was the terrain on which newly liberated African societies had to contend. There was no way an even playing field for a country such as uh, Mozambique to maneuver. The multiple crises of enemies from uh, within, as well as those from without, uh, 
turned out to be insurmountable. Trying to maintain a Mozambican socialism under those conditions was just not possible. I do think in looking forward to uh, the greater grounding of this societal as well as individual story. I, I think it's much needed and um, can't wait to uh, get a copy of, of that particular assessment. Even having said this, uh, they've told an amazing story. What was accomplished even in our time seems to me almost insurmountable. The odds were so great and that cannot be forgotten. Uh, the intensity, the courage of the, the courage of the Mozambican people, the leadership, the brilliance of not only um, the uh, Samora Michelle story, but the others who sacrificed, many died. And that's an important, important lesson for us. Uh, it's clear that, and as the book was closed, closing out, I appreciated that even though uh, his presence, there was an attempt to erase it, uh, Samora Michelle has not been forgotten. And he certainly wasn't forgotten by the young people that we met with, uh, well aware, uh, very much committed to the kind of vision of uh, a world where the full development of all human beings is possible. And his death, his murder, October 19th, 1986, surely must uh, linger with us, uh, remind us of the heavy costs so many have paid. Despite attempts uh, to, as I noted, erase, uh, this cannot be forgotten. It should not be forgotten. And so the story is not done. There's much more to tell. There are more lessons to learn. No doubt, Alan and Bobby have done a great service. Samora Michelle, a life cut short, takes us a long way toward understanding what our liberation must look like. Thank you, Bobby and Alan. Thank you, Rose. Thank you, Rose. Um, August, please. Yes, uh, thank you. Uh, like Rose, I really want to uh, appreciate, uh, extend my appreciation to Eastside uh, Freedom Library and uh, Alan and Bobby for inviting me to be a part of the, to be a part of the uh, discussion. I think I probably had more uh, questions, perhaps, than uh, uh, observations uh, about the book itself and the. Uh, uh, book itself, uh, I think, is an important uh, contribution, and I like the way it's been written, accessible. Uh, the uh, thinking about young people uh, in in Mozambique being able to to read this and to to uh, to study it and to uh, make use of it to think about uh, what are the lessons of uh, of uh, uh, Samora Michelle's Michelle's life. There's a discussion going on right now in Burkina Faso mm -hmm. around uh, Thomas Sankara uh, in uh, reviving and bringing him back into uh, into public uh, mm -hmm. uh, discussion. And I think this book uh, has the potential for doing uh, for doing that. And I was pleased to uh, 
share it with uh, with friends in uh, in Brazil and uh, and uh, thinking that they too uh, would benefit uh, much from this. It's uh, it's it's not a, ha a hagiography. I want to applaud uh, uh, Bobby and Alan and writing an honest account because if we are to go forward and to learn, we have to we have to actually have the facts and to be and to uh, and to be and to be honest. Uh, in reading uh, the book, I realized how much I didn't know and wish I had known uh, about uh, Fray Limo. I arrived in Tanzania around the time of Monlani's uh, assassination, and I lived down the road from uh, the Fray Limo school uh, in Bagamoyo. How much I would I would have liked to have known what's in the book about uh, about the school itself. I shopped. Uh, oftentimes and stopped by a Makonde village uh, on the road to the University of Dar, Dar es Salaam. And so to read this and to realize how much I didn't know uh, is, uh, is uh, for me, makes the book even more, uh, even more uh, significant. Uh, <clears throat> the, uh, I, I tend to think as a comparativist and to think about what was going on in Mozambique in relationship to other liberation uh, movements. Uh, just thinking about the question that Rose raised at the end about how do you survive uh, in the context of global capitalism? Does Cuba offer any lessons uh, given the proximity of the Cuban revolution 90 miles uh, from, the, from the shores of the, uh, uh, of the United States? And uh, are there any lessons uh, for Mozambique and countries like Mozambique, uh, does Cuba offer any lessons? Uh, thinking about the the uh, Nicaragua and the uh, the Frente Sandinista and Frelimo as a Frente as a as a front and party organizing are there problems inherent problems in trying to organize a front? Were um, uh, there um, um, difficulties in uh, bringing together different different uh, uh, organizations and trying to integrate them in, uh, in a way that's uh, productive and honest and uh, in, in a democratic, in a democratic uh, uh, fashion. As uh, Alan knows, I've been thinking a long time uh, about the question of whatever happened to the African revolution. Uh, many years ago, I outlined a sketch, a book prospectus article um, to look at what happened to the African Revolution. It was my intent, actually, to go to Mozambique one day and to interview people uh, from that earlier generation. Obviously, that, that's not going to happen, and uh, some of the people I'd wanted to talk to are no longer alive, uh, unfortunately. So, so the book itself uh, is really useful for me uh, towards that project and maybe going back to it. And I look forward, glad to hear that there will be a longer book that will go into greater detail because that will be uh, that will be even more uh, even more valuable but yes I applaud this book because I think as an introduction accessible and especially thinking about the youth and uh, the lessons uh, in all of this uh, and how to to go to go forward um, and I guess one of the questions uh, uh, I had uh, uh, for uh, Bobby and Alan is uh, the um, the authoritarian uh, uh, side to uh, uh, to um, uh, Samora's practice, uh, I had long attributed to 
the influence of the Portuguese uh, Communist Party and the legacy of Stalinism. Uh, but to read and to think about uh, Samora's life, uh, I don't see the, the organic uh, connection between, mm -hmm. the, uh, between the Portuguese uh, Stalinists and Samora. And so I'd be curious to know um, uh, what were there any connections at all? Were there any organic connections at all? If not, what impact, if any, did the Portuguese uh, Communist Party experience uh, have on Samora's understanding uh, of uh, of Marxism? Will that be maybe in the new book? You you said you should look at archives in Portugal and in the Soviet Union and so on, and perhaps that kind of a connection I'm thinking about might be there in those archives, but that's something I, I'm curious in, uh, in, knowing, in knowing about. Uh, the, uh, uh, I, I think the last big thing I want to raise is the uh, question of some, the question that I know historians don't particularly like, but it seems to me that the title of the book uh, the title of the book begs the question, uh, what if his life had not been interrupted? Uh, were you willing to say, um, um, speculate at all uh, on that? Uh, was, the, was there already a trajectory in place that would have negated some other course or did what we see towards the end of the life of his life and so on? Was that the path that was set? Was it a uh, is, was that outcome that was likely to be to be the future, unless something might have happened in the larger uh, in the larger in the larger world? And along those lines, uh, the developments in South Africa. We, those of us who were active in the African Liberation Support Committee work, always thought that uh, developments in in Mozambique would depend upon developments in, in South Africa. South Africa was a regional uh, imperial imperial power. And so thinking about the new South Africa, what would the new, had the new South Africa come into existence earlier? Uh, would that have made, made, made a difference uh, at all? So those are just some of the things that immediately come to mind. And so I'd be curious to hear what uh, both Bobby and Alan, and I applaud you again, again for not for not writing a, a, a hagiography, but really an honest assessment uh, of uh, Samora Michelle. Thank you, August. Um, Bobby and Alan, do you have responses to Rose and August? Yeah, Bobby's going to. No, no, I just, <laughs> I, I'm going to just start with one thing because it, it did strike me from what August said about. Uh, about wanting to do research on the impact of the African revolution. You should know that there are still quite a few people who are alive in Mozambique that um, were involved, some of them at rather high levels, uh, we discovered in our last visit there. We, we Unfortunately, we haven't been back since COVID started, but before then we had made contact with an organization um, of people who had been involved in the armed struggle. And they ranged, I mean, they were, they were men and women and they ranged um, you know, from people who had extremely high positions to people who never got to be more than foot soldiers. But it's really, it, it was very interesting, their stories as we began to hear them. Unfortunately, um, we didn't get very far in that interviewing and we hope that they are mostly still alive when we go back next year. 
but um, but there are a lot of people who 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 were young children almost. I mean, they were plucked out of their societies in northern Mozambique, and they became they were first messengers, boys and girls, and then they became then they got involved in the army, and then during and before during and after I mean before and after independence. Numerous ones of numerous men and women were sent overseas to study other places and came back and took on rather significant positions in the post-independence period. So there's a lot to be learned from them, and there is still a lot of information out there. So thanks, Bobby. So August, so uh, Rose and August raised together a fundamental question about the revolution in Mozambique. And uh, Rose was suggested that we have to think not only of the limits of what Samoa and Frelimo were able to do or imagine doing, but it always has to be framed, and I agree 100%, in a larger global context. International capitalism, uh, uh, it, it, though not hegemonic, because there are different tendencies. Nevertheless, the Western capitalist countries were committed to making sure that the revolution did not succeed. Now, that's hardly surprising. The same thing happened in Cuba, in Nicaragua, and in other places. Mozambique was particularly vulnerable because its economy was so underdeveloped and also because it was so dependent on South Africa. And so it's absolutely true that there was, even at the moment of independence, there was little space for Frelimo. And one of the interesting stories, which I just learned uh, a short while ago from Dutch comrades who were working with Frelimo, is that two months before independence, there was a, a wedding and a party and in the course of the party, some, all the Filipino leadership was there. Some more called them together and said, you ought not to celebrate so much. It's actually in some ways a curse that we're getting independence so quickly. Mm -hmm. And they all looked at him and he said to one, one general, he said, are you prepared to be the minister of economics? And to another, who is gonna be the head of the bank? And above all, he said, who has the experience and knowledge to be president? <laughs> and so there was a self-awareness of the real limits at the same time that there was this attention, uh, tension with this notion of human agency, that we didn't create the world that we lived in, but we could change it. They had expected the, and had actually hoped that the war would go on longer, ironically, uh, so they can get a foothold throughout the country. So, but the fact is the West was deeply committed to subverting uh, the Mozambican revolution and ultimately succeeds after Samora's death uh, when they, the economies in, in absolute uh, sh uh, shambles. shambles and they forced Mozambique like they did in many other parts of the global South to accept IMF World Bank prescriptions, which meant the end of subsidies for, for, for food and free school, free education, uh, free housing, uh, subsidized housing, free healthcare, 
and of course, ultimately leads to the further alienation of Mozambican people who, who, like all people, when they dream of a revolution, think first and foremost how life will be much better, if not for them, for their children. And the West and South Africa destroyed that possibility. Well, unfortunately, there was also there were also internal problems because at the at the time that Samora was killed, um, he was getting ready to deal with corruption, which had become much more of a problem. In the beginning, when in the early years after independence, um, it was understood that because people were involved in the government, that gave them a certain cachet for certain kinds of consumer goods that other people didn't have. Um, but over time, um, many of the leaders became much more interested in their own self-preservation and their family's advancement than they were in the revolutionary principles that they were supposed to be carrying out. And there were a number of serious problems, one of which involved, or several of which involved Gabuza, who became the president, not right after Samora died, but the one after that. Um, and there is, and there was some knowledge that he was going to start a big campaign to deal with corruption at the time that he was that he ended up being killed. And there was some some talk, although nothing ever proven, that some people in the government might have been involved in some way in. Um, in the in the yeah. um, in, in the plane being being um, you know brought diverted down. and 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 fought down because they were concerned that they were going to be losing some of their prerogatives. So the so it's of course very difficult to imagine what life would have been like had Samora lived. Um, he might have been able to um, to manage corruption in some way, in some ways, but um, but he might not have. And of course, once uh, the West was able to modify um, how the government operated, it became that much more critical for the people who were in power to use their positions of power to maintain themselves. And so corruption got much worse during the, during the post-socialist uh, period, when really all that people had to sell was their, was their influence. So one of the things uh, that's really important to note, and I don't, I don't think I put, we put it in our book, but I had a conversation with Samore a couple of months before the plane crash. And he told me uh, that when he did, he told me that when he got back from Lusaka, where he went before the plane uh, uh, crashed, that he was also going to change the army because there were a whole bunch of young people uh, who were well-trained in anti-guerrilla tactics and anti-terrorist tactics uh, who were being blocked for a variety of reasons by older generals. And so that also creates a problem. What happens when the revolutionary generals and leaders uh, become corrupt, but also ineffective in fighting the South African-backed terrorists. Because the, terms of the, kind of because the type of fighting had changed. And as a, result, uh, as a result, there is a lot of speculation, and I won't uh, go into any particular names. And it's generally believed that when there were people in the Mozambican government 
who are closely connected with the South Africans who are involved in some more Michelle's death because of either they, they didn't like his politics, they thought a socialist agenda was the wrong one, or as Bobby said, suggested, because they were profiting and they wanted to continue to profit and S'more was very committed to a anti-corruption campaign. So it's hard to know, August, you know, it's what historians call hypothetical history. <laughs> uh, what if, but I think it would have been, a, it was the, all the structural forces, the forces of, uh, and power relationships, whether it's South Africa or the West, were all converging and, and as Rose suggested, squeezing Samora and squeezing the, the leadership. And so I don't know how much space they would have had even if Samora had survived. So one of the other things going on here was the relationship between Filimo and the um, Eastern European Soviet bloc. And of course, um, I mean, that was both good and bad because on the one hand, they were providing assistance that Mozambique could not get from, from Western countries. But on the other hand, they were dumping their um, outmoded materials uh, in Mozambique in return for very good deals on Mozambican exports. So um, what, they were, what the Mozambicans were receiving were not really sufficient to assist them in carrying out their revolutionary aims throughout the countryside. Um, and, so, and, and so that was problematic too. And of course, the Soviet Union and South Africa were involved in some very strange political machinations and Mozambique was kind of caught mm -hmm. in the middle of those. Um, but that Mozambique was able to accomplish what it did is really remarkable. Um, you know, we traveled around in the countryside during the period right after Mozambique became independent, and the enthusiasm for Filimo was incredible, even in areas that uh, Filimo had never reached during the, during the armed struggle. Uh, and so there was a lot of energy and people were very, um, were, were very um, organized in trying to change the way their societies operated. And those things that they could do just based on people power, they were able to accomplish. So they had really good latrine campaigns. They, um, they had really good campaigns. Well, I, some of that wasn't the, they, they tried to deal with, um, with the implications of their positions on the liberation of women, which was more problematic. Um, so they they were they were very opposed to um, to child marriages and to polygamy, and they wanted people to have only one one wife. And so they had this whole concept of the revolutionary Mozambican family. The problem was, though, that men were used to. In, Impregnate, impregnating numerous wives. And when they only had one, they were unwilling to maintain spacing for their families. So women's teeth were falling out. They were delivering babies that were less healthy because they were pregnant per, almost perpetually. And the government did try and deal with that. And they did have campaigns about, about that as well. Um, and you know, some of them were successful and it was really good that they were trying. Um, but on the other hand, while they insisted that women work, they didn't give women the facilities that would allow them to work, which is, of course, the same problem we are facing right now in the United States. 
So there was no childcare. There were there was no assistance in, for women doing the work that they had to do at home, and yet they were expected to have full time jobs. The government also didn't really consider that they might get pregnant and need and need maternity leave. Um, so that was another problem. I, I mean, you can see these problems are obviously universal. Um, and they exist in all societies and Mozambique didn't have the capabilities, physical uh, or otherwise, uh, of, of dealing with a lot of them. So, and in the economic sphere, of course, they, you know, they had almost no people who were, um, who were educated sufficiently to be able to handle the responsibilities that they were given. So as Baba was saying, about at the moment of independence, about 95% of the population was rural and most were uh, non-literate. Non mm -hmm. uh, so again, how do you transform a society without political caters, without economists, geographers, etc.? But I want to get to one final question because I know uh, we'd love to get comments from other people. And that is, again, thinking from the global perspective, that is for the Mozambique was committed to Marxism, but also was committed to non-alignment. Yes. This is very important. So that they did not, they refused to get embroiled in the Sino-Soviet uh, conflicts. They refused to give the Soviet Union naval bases in the Indian Ocean. They were deeply committed to demilitarization of the Indian Ocean. And they, and they understood very clearly that this, for the Soviet Union, their struggle was not the important struggle. The real struggle with the Soviet Union was South Africa. Uh, for all sorts of economic and uh, geopolitical reasons. And it's one of the things that has come out very clearly now is the so the Mozambique, the uh, the most South uh, the excuse me, the Soviet Union provided the type of weapons which would help withstand uh, South African attacks, but not guerrilla attacks. And for them, there was a way to place weapons near the South African border and, that, and uh, missiles and things, which the Mozambicans really couldn't use, and, uh, but which would be a, a counterpoise uh, to the South Africans. And so, in fact, we, I only learned very recently that Putin was there. Wow. Uh, on the South African border. And that was their, their agenda was really the South, the Soviet Union's agenda was really the liberation of South Africa, the support of the South African Communist Party. And with regard to Communist Party, August, just that last question about the Portuguese Communist Party, Samora had no links whatsoever with the Portuguese Communist Party, but there were a handful of Mozambicans, about a dozen, who got an education in Portugal. And the Portuguese Communist Party was the major anti-fascist an anti-colonial force. And so they became very much influenced by the we'll French the Communist French Party and the French Communist Party and came with a very Stalinist perspective okay. that Samora and others resisted. So let me let us stop there and we'll be very happy to answer any and all questions. Great, thank you. Um, Carla, can you put everybody on the screen in gallery view and Let's move to more of a conversation format and um, hopefully, and yes. Well, don't spotlight me, uh, please. 
And um, Anne, Anne Winkler-Mori, why don't you, Carla, would you allow Anne to unmute? And Anne, would you ask your question yes. about international solidarity, please? I'm asking her to unmute. She should be able to now. Ah, okay. Is that working for you, Anne? Yes, there you go. There okay. you go. Okay, let me spotlight everybody and get you off there. Uh, who else do we need? Okay. I think that's it. Okay, go ahead, Anne, please. Yeah, so I was just wondering about international solidarity and the role that it played. And, um, and especially if, if we are asking what if, um, what role should it have played? Maybe if we're gonna be critical about, about the lessons that we could learn, um, you know, in both in, in, in Portugal and the rest of the world. In, uh, so, and I would say this, and it's nice to see you again, Anne. Uh, you. I, I would say this, that uh, most, the Mozambican revolution, to the extent that it was successful, primarily in terms of transforming the social dimensions of society, the inequalities, was heavily influenced and benefited enormously from the Cubans. They were the, they were the single, they and the Chinese, in very different ways, were the single best uh, allies. Unlike, again, the Eastern European countries who sent members of the communist, of the party, but they sent members of the party, they got members of the party to go there by offering them big ticket items. So anyone from Bulgaria, and we lived with Bulgarians for a while, after two years there, they would go back and pass through Rome and had, could buy a TV or, or a dishwasher or something. The Cubans, especially Cuban doctors and teachers, were just extremely hardworking, as were the uh, Chinese and also, also the Vietnamese. Well, what was really interesting about the Chinese is that they were not into, they were into what's called euphemistically appropriate technology. technology because um, they knew that machinery didn't work necessarily and then not everybody had access to machinery and probably at that time there wasn't all that much access to machinery in China Chinese. either. So mm -hmm. they developed, they went out to work on, on many, many um, state farms where they developed irrigation systems that were all, um, all gravitational. Yeah. So it, there wasn't a, a problem with machines breaking down or with spare parts, things like that. So the Chinese were very effective that way. But I think also Western European um, people who came to work there, yeah, like either with their, through their political parties, like the Italians came with the Italian Communist Party, or there were lots of, of Chileans that came after Exiles. Pinochet took over that were had been associated with the Chilean Communist Party. And then all of the people who came from, um, from Western Europe who were in, in uh, liberation support movements played very, very significant roles in the non-economic um, sector. So in, in, in terms of doctors and uh, healthcare professionals, architects, um, you know, school teachers, things like that. Um, Western cooperants, which is what we were all called, played very, very significant roles. Mm. 
So August and Rose, do you want to weigh in on Anne's question about international solidarity? Well, I'll just say, uh, Anne, it's good to see you. <laughs> uh, uh, and if I remember correctly, one of our courses, Alan, you and I, and Lansenet taught many years ago. Uh, she was one of the uh, participants in that class. Yeah, um, I, I just wanted to say that uh, I was a participant in something called the African Liberation Support Committee here in the United States uh, and in the Caribbean. And these were African-Americans there who were offering solidarity. But it was a problem we ran into. And uh, I remember talking to Filimo uh, people, Rebello and uh, Pam uh, Dos Santos in uh, 1973. Uh, we went to bring. Uh, uh, some uh, co contribute monetary contributions that had been raised by the African Liberation Support Committee. But the problem that uh, existed here in the United States was that this particular group didn't want to work with uh, people who were not black. Right. And, uh, and that was a real difficulty for, uh, for Limo having to decide and to negotiate and to deal uh, with, it, uh, with, that, uh, with that fact. And we were only able to overcome that division, I think, by the time of the Soweto Rebellion in 1976, we, locally, we were able to form an, a multiracial uh, African liberation uh, uh, network. But uh, before then, it was very difficult to get uh, African-American uh, who were interested in um, support work to, for Limo and other groups there to work with uh, uh, non-Black people. Right. And, and, that, and that's absolutely true. And then in the uh... Right after independence, we organized the committee, uh, we organized the Mozambican Support Network as South Africa was trying to destabilize it. And uh, it was multiracial, but there were a number of groups that were very reluctant uh, to, uh, to participate. And it actually, in some ways, took uh, intervention from President Michel to give that group the type of legitimacy and the part of that was that uh, Samora's position and the position of Filimo was that any, Mozin, any person born in Mozambique who would define themselves in, as Mozambican and was willing to commit to the revolution was Mozambican. And their problem was a sort of an empirical one, the same as in South Africa, that there were large numbers of Blacks, not large in, in, in percentage terms, but many thousand, who, some who volunteered, some were conscripted, but many volunteered for the elite uh, Portuguese colonial armies and committed some of the worst atrocities. Mm -hmm. As just as some whites were willing to commit to and die for liberation in Mozambique and South Africa. So that empirical phenomenon, as well as an emphasis on class and not simply race, while not denying the importance of race, uh, was very important in shaping Filimo's uh, anti-racist policies. Rose? That was a, a big part of uh, not only uh, the international solidarity, but back to Alan's point uh, and Bobby's earlier point, that was a, a great source of the internal conflict and tension uh, within uh, a front that had uh, folk who uh, really in a very essentialized way 
uh, utilize race. So both internally as well as externally, uh, it was an issue, a source of great yeah, controversy. You're absolutely right, Rose. And in fact, there was a person who was uh, claimed to be Mozambican, who ultimately turns out was African-American working for the CIA, <laughs> mm -hmm. got to an extremely important position in, in Frelimo. And so all these sort of empirical uh, uh, lived experiences reinforce a class analysis rather than simply a race analysis. Thank you. Shifting gears a little bit, um, our, our dear friend Ricardo Levens Morales has a question. R Ricardo, can you unmute? Carla, can I you believe I am now unmuted? You this are indeed, correct. yes. It's lovely. Well, hello, everybody. Lovely to see hey, you all. Um, so I have a question um, coming from two sources. One is that growing up in little 100-mile-long Puerto Rico, right, during the era of the National Liberation Movements, a little island with mountains, but no big wilderness, right? I was always fascinated with the countries that had liberated territories as part of their struggle, right? And kind of riffing off of what, you know, or um, taking off from what Rose was talking about, about, you know, what happens when you throw off a colonial power and you emerge into a global balance of power that doesn't look good, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that creates vulnerabilities. And this, I just wanna sort of put out an impression and see what y'all who know much more than I do think, okay? So it creates a lot of vulnerabilities and it really matters who you organize and who you alienate internally if you're gonna to try to make the best you can of a bad situation. Mm. And I read an interview once with uh, Grasa Machel, and, and this is where the question comes from, where she was talking about in the liberated territories, they were really working hard to promote village democracy and collective agriculture, and to the extent, at least theoretically, promote equality of women, and that, which is in some ways, one of the most beautiful things they did. But the unforeseen consequences were that they basically didn't take seriously and totally sidelined traditional local leadership. Right. And that because they just didn't think about the importance of bringing them along to some degree or another, because they wanted to move so quickly toward a socialist model in the villages, That's that nice. that created a natural allies for Renamo and the, the right wing, South African, et cetera, Rhodesian backed guerrillas that could co-opt these people and give legit legitimacy to their, their movement. Okay, so, so I'm just wondering, it's one of those dilemmas. And it makes me think that maybe if Mozambique had been liberated when the whole world was moving towards socialism, that strategy might've been enough. But given those obstacles, what did that, you know, what did that do in terms of local cohesion and the possibility of cross-class um, alliances? Well, one of the problems was, of course, that, um, that Frelimo defined the normal leadership as being reactionary under looking at it from a socialist perspective. And so, and so, and interfering with their goal, with lots of their goals. 
Um, so in the liberated zones, they, they tried to create new systems. And in fact, that's partly what Alan was talking about, about it happening too fast, because they didn't get to put those kinds of new systems in place in very much of the country. If it had taken them longer to make their way south, they would have had more, larger liberated zones and they would have been able to do more of this experimentation. The other thing is that their treatment of chiefs was different depending on where they were and depending on the history of the area. Mm -hmm. And so when they were trying to move the revolution, move for Limo activity south of the Zambezi River, they utilized the chiefs there because they had a tradition of resistance against Portuguese colonialism. So they were able to appeal to that and they were able to get assistance in, in traveling through those areas. They were put up and they were protected from the Portuguese because of the previous activities of the chiefs there, which were different than the chiefs in Northern Mozambique. And of course you had some who were Muslims who were again, out more outside the system even than those in Cabo Delgado who were not. So they had to deal with very, very different internal, internal situations and relationships. Um, and you know they were probably too quick to, um, to rail against authorities that existing authorities because they didn't really understand the relationship. Um, they didn't understand the how these these were kind of complete relationships. Some parts about them were bad, but some parts about them were good. Just like they wanted to make uh, use of of uh, remedies, quote unquote, traditional remedies, but without really putting them in the context of who is using them in that society. So, I mean, those are problems that are that are very very serious, and and were not really thought through by the by the leadership at any time, I don't think. So there's two things I want to, want to emphasize, one of which, from Frelimo's perspective in 1974, the world looked very different than it looks now, for instance. You had the Cuban Revolution, the Nicaraguan Revolution. They were thought they were in the vanguard of change. The Chinese, the Vietnamese, everyone was supporting them. Uh, this. The other point, which is one that uh, Bobby makes, and that is, and that the, the chiefs, some chiefs, many of the chiefs, were in fact appointed by the Portuguese. The Portuguese replaced those indigenous leaders who uh, resisted or were defiant or did uh, enforce Portuguese law. Now, what made Frilima successful? in those areas that they liberated, Grasso was right, was that uh, they did offer an alternative society in real material concern. So the first thing they did was abolish forced labor and forced cotton cultivation. The second thing they did was establish schools and, uh, and uh, medical facilities, however rudimentary. And it, a political system. And a new political system in which there were long debates, in fact, I can remember going to meetings that went on for 11 or 12 hours and they weren't stopped because people, everyone wanted to say something. So there was enormous amount energy. of energy. On the other hand, the, some of the people around Felimo with whom I disagreed with and who disagreed with me, uh, they said I was merely a progressive uh, Africanist. Uh, 
didn't understand. They, they were urban-based, they were intellectuals, and they had no, really no knowledge of the indigenous cultures. And they were also very arrogant. It was a type of high modernism of, the, of a Stalinist type in which they knew what was best. And they thought that they could just parcel out cultures and say, this is good, this is progressive, this is reactionary, we'll get rid of all the reactionary things, we'll keep the progressive things, and you can't do that. So they made, it, they made a lot of errors. Now, the final thing I want to say is about Renamo. Renamo was a creation of Rhodesia and the South African. Renamo was a terrorist group over time, beginning maybe eight or nine years after they had destroyed vast parts of the countryside, they also be, took on a life of their own and at least parts of Renamo became a little more political and began to appeal to the dissatisfaction mm -hmm. of Mozambique, either because the, their chiefs were replaced or more importantly, because the economy wasn't working. People used to say to us all the time, in the, in the colonial days, we had potatoes but no freedom. Now we have freedom and no potatoes. Well, from a materialist perspective, that, be, that speaks tons. Well, and also if you look geographically, the areas where Renamo later on made um, its greatest inroads were areas that were not really being um, being supervised by Fulimo at all. Serviced well so, by Fulimo. Huh? Serviced well. Right. So we were we were in an area right on the Zambezi River, which was um, near the Zimbabwean border, and there were all of these people there wearing Renamo shirts. And the reason they were wearing Renamo shirts is because Renamo was the one who brought them rice. Fulimo, the Fulimo government didn't bring them rice. So Renamo took advantage of lapses in government structures in order to, um, to get more oh. adherence to, their, to and, their side. And the other thing, and this is very interesting, this is the flip side of non-racialism or anti-racialism. Renamo pointed out that in the government of Mozambique were a number of uh, racially mixed people, Asian. Asian Mozambicans and white Mozambicans. And what Renamo claimed, what these were the Marxists who had captured the revolution and it wasn't really a Mozambican revolution. And that was one of the problems we have in the United States. And I actually told some more about it. I said very clearly, you know, I don't hate white people, but you can't send a delegation to the United States uh, representing Mozambique of all white people because you, that, you don't understand the politics in the United States and how race marks indelibly in the first instance politics in the United States. And that was a real problem too for Filimo. So Filimo's anti-racism had some unintended consequences that were really unfortunate. Let me bring my friend Chamath into the conversation whose question about Marxism and ideology, I think, meshes nicely with what's being talked about. Chamath? Uh, um, thank you, Peter, and thank you, Alan, Bobby, and uh, also Augustine Rose. It's an honor to be in conversation with you. Alan, I remember a story you shared in class that would have been like in 1988 or 89. Uh, we were talking about peasants and revolution and about social banditry. And you related the story of uh, trying to share this con concept or idea with Samora Michelle. And Michelle said, well, this is like 
if there is a wild elephant charging at you, do you know whether it is a social elephant or a, a, a wild elephant? This to me sounded like he was a very non-doctrinaire person. But my question is, you, you uh, referred multiple times to Machel's uh, Marxism and about Marxism in Mozambique. I was wondering whether they had developed concept or concepts or theories uh, like the way that um, the PAIGC uh, and Amilka Cabral did. Was, was it as, as uh, fecund, was it as original? Not that that's, a, that's an important criteria, but I was wondering, given the complexities of their situation, how did they respond to it? So, so again, this is where Milcar Cabral and some more, their autobiographies are so significant because <laughs> uh, even though some more read Marx and, and Mao and Lenin, he was not steeped in Marxism except through practice. And his, his belief in Marxism was very uh, firm, but not very rigid. On the other hand, in Mozambique, and even among the Felidimo leadership, it was very shallow. So there were some people who were committed. Uh, what? It was shallow for, for some, some, not for everyone. No, but there were a lot of people. Once more said, we're Marxists, they clapped their hands and said, viva Marxismo or something like that. that, that uh, and so, and easy there was come, easy go. there was no easy, there was no real project uh, to develop a type of black Marxism or black, a Marxism, uh, that's you Cedric's word, Robinson's word, a Marxism mm -hmm. that really was rooted in Mozambican reality. They didn't have the time. They didn't have the intellectual energy or capacity. Uh, and that was probably one, uh, one of the limits. But on the other hand, from a Marxist perspective, the most important things was the transformation of the material conditions. And that's what they focused on, did some things well, did other things poorly. So if, if I could jump in and, and ask a question, um, August, you described yourself as a comparativist. And, and I think Anne's question about international solidarity, some of the ways that okay, we're all talking tonight about the specifics of Mozambique, experiences in South Africa or Cuba, uh, or other places, um, how do we, you know, there's the bumper sticker knowledge, uh, think globally, uh, act locally. Um, how, do, how do we think here in the second decade, or I guess it's actually the third decade of the 21st century, um, how do we think internationally and, and take action today? So let me, I'm going to pick on August and, and start with August on this. Sure. <laughs> uh, well, I was thinking uh, uh, to raise with uh, Bobby and Alan a question that might be related to what you were raising, Peter. In their, uh, in the bigger book that's coming mm -hmm. out, uh, had they considered maybe towards at the end thinking uh, comparatively and thinking, uh, I think the Cuba 
the Cuba comparison, I think, is crucial. Um, almost all of the issues that uh, Frelimo and the revolution faced were issues that the, uh, that the Cubans faced. The only difference I see is mm -hmm. the question of traditional, traditional leaders. Uh -huh. uh, that was that was different uh, in Cuba, but in there I would bring in if I if we we're going to do the comparison, bring in Che's experience when he was in the Congo, mm -hmm. right? because Che because Che ran into this problem uh, in the Congo. How do you translate the Cuban experience uh, to the African to the African terrain? And so um, yeah, and trying to draw a balance sheet and try to think, I think we have to go back and look at the balance sheet. Look, actually, what happened then? Try to it distill lessons from that, provided though we actually have the appropriate mm. terrain to make the comparisons on. So I would bring in the Cuba question and the Cuban experience in the Congo, especially Che ran up into this, this problem around traditional leaders and so on in the, uh, a society with a, a lot of different languages and ethnic groups and so on. Mm -hmm. Thank and, you. I have to tell you, I'm sure you're aware of August, but in case you're not, the Mozambicans were really put off by, by Che because okay. he, he came with it. Unlike Fidel, uh, Fidel, by the way, I just have to tell you one story. When he came to Mozambique, he went to a big rally and in every rally, Samoa Michelle would sing. The first thing he would sing in the local language for about 20 minutes and with his eyes at a magic, it just galvanized everyone. And, and, and at one point, uh, uh, Fidel said to the audience that Samora Michel is the only internationalist and revolutionary who could win a revolution by singing. And it really did say something about uh, popular culture, but also Che's appreciation of local culture. On the other hand, uh, 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 I, 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 did I say Che? I meant Castro. Yeah. On the other hand, Che came with a, a map in his mind, a mental map of what they did in Cuba, try to tell the Mozambicans what to do, and they found him to be very arrogant. And then he, well, that's, you want to read, then that's important to read Che's diary, because it's a self-critique. He critiques himself by bringing the Cuban experience into the Congo and realizes it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. Rose, do you want to weigh in? What was the question again? <laughs> How do we how do we put these experiences together to to make a map for ourselves today? Um, is is it international solidarity? Is it comparativism? Um, how do we how do we act locally while thinking transnationally, globally? Um, and I and I wonder either. Rose, about the students who went with you mm -hmm. uh, that you started out talking about, or the students in your class who are reading Alan and Bobby's book right now, um, how how are they thinking mm -hmm. transnationally? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, I always enter with time, place, and condition, and mm -hmm. <laughs> that's that's where we start. You know, with this, uh, as you said, the third decade of the twentieth century. Uh, certainly, there's some lessons then that can be be gleaned uh, from the Mozambican experience. Uh, but the terrain has really shifted quite dramatically. And one of the things I was I was thinking about was the nuancing, it goes back to uh, Ricardo's question, uh, the uh, nuancing of, uh, you know, the idea that you don't disrupt 
the rural area, I, I, except I guess if you're China where they have removed you know, thousands of people from them. But, uh, and, and you may know this, uh, August, I think the Cubans found that lesson out very, very early on. Uh, you know, there, you know, some people are calling it market socialism, other people are calling mm -hmm. it, uh, uh, the Chinese call it uh, socialism with a Chinese aspect to it. But definitely this time, place and condition matters. Uh, and uh, so that's one of the lessons that that, that we lift up. We also lift up this whole, uh, and I'm talking about the classes and, and the students, uh, this whole idea of really, what does it mean to think uh, strategically uh, if you're trying to, um, to uh, engage in the kind of social transformation that the Mozambicans were engaged in? And obviously, uh, Michelle was a tremendous strategist but he was also a tactician that maybe that even superseded his mm. strategic uh, impulses, um, maybe superseded them. Uh, he, he was strong in, in both arenas, but uh, the final point is that we need to know this society very, very well. It, it's not that it is insular or it doesn't have, it shouldn't be located in a broader global context, who could even begin to say that with you know, financialization and all the expressions that uh, the political economy globally has taken. But uh, I, would, I guess I would say the, as we were reading the book, you know, uh, it is a, a bit of a danger to impose a philosophy uh, on a society where certain things about it have been working but uh, I, I've heard and listened very carefully to, um, to Alan and Bobby. Uh, there just wasn't enough time to either strategically think it through, to, to nuance it in a way that may have made a difference. You know, who knows? Mm -hmm. um, and I'm kind of dancing around your question, but those are some of the issues. Oh, that's great. Thank okay. you. Thank you. And so, can I, can August, I just add to what? Yeah, can, what, what Rose says is I think more about, and I'm trying to push Alan and uh, Bobby on their, on the next book, on the bigger book. Uh, are they willing, are you all willing to think about drawing lessons? Uh, um, lessons that can be used elsewhere. That is, what is the balance sheet about what happened uh, in, um, in Mozambique? Uh, to, is that something that you feel comfortable in doing or not or, or, or what? I'm, I'm, I'm curious. I think that's a great question to close on. So, Alan and Bobby, if you have a response to that. and Yeah, I, I do. I don't think we could duck it. Uh, <laughs> we, I think we have to. We, you might try, Alan. <laughs> we have to uh, have a postscript that uh, addresses not only what would have happened mm -hmm. if Clara lived, because it's not one man. No, what, right. not great, not. what might have happened. It's not about a great man, a great man in history. It's about the structural, how you mobilize people and the structural forces that are going to operate against you and how you have to be more strategic. But of course, you know, again, this whole notion of, of being strategic, they were trying to do two things simultaneously, three things simultaneously, which is very hard to do. Mm -hmm. uh, an armed struggle, transform society and maintain dimensions of society. And right after independence, the first thing they had to do, they had to keep the economy going at the same time that they were transforming it. 
How do you do that? I mean, that's an enormous problem, even if you have the great minds and a clear ideology and a roadmap. So it was a very difficult task. And uh, I think I like the idea, August, of doing something that's comparative. I just wonder mm -hmm. if we have the knowledge about Cuba or Nicaragua to make it. So I'm, I'm going to pass it on to you, August. And but, you could... So I think that there's another thing here, though. Um, when you write a biography, you're focusing on an individual, when really the individual is embedded in his or her society. And I mean, that's the part that we weren't able to fully develop because of time constraints. Wait. And so we knew about it. And and there was bunches of things in the original manuscript that had to be deleted and put somewhere else for use later on when we do when we do the next book. And so when you talk about what about the what ifs, you have to look at more than just the what ifs about Samora. What if Samora had lived or not lived? It's also the what ifs about Philemo. It's the what ifs about the about the rural societies that they um, that they were trying to change. It's the what ifs about the urban areas, and so all of those what ifs have to be considered, um, which is a much more complicated task than what we were doing this time. <laughs> let me let me suggest an opening thesis. <laughs> uh, in the 18th room, in the 18th uh, Marx begins with this question about what is the relationship between structure, structures, and agency. Mm -hmm. And he says, of course, you're free to make, we're free to make our own decisions, but we are not free to choose the conditions right. under which we make these choices. Right. It seems to me that this is what, this is the, the issue. And mm -hmm. uh, I would go back um, uh, uh, to, to even Lenin, right after the Bolsheviks take power, Lenin has a meeting with some peasants from the uh, Central Asia. Uh, nomadic life, and these peasants say they want to carry out a socialist revolution. And Lenin says, "Holy comrades, <laughs> you're not. That's not. That's not on the agenda where you live right now. Take it easy. We'll try to carry out the socialist revolution to aid you, but that's not the reality in which you, in which you are facing." Well, and there are also all kinds of unintended consequences that are not thought through. I mean, we've discussed some of them, but one particular one comes to mind. Um, and that is right after independence, um, immediately Philemo wanted to reorganize everybody into communal villages because that was the way that they were functioning in the North and they were creating this new kind of society. But in the areas of Mozambique where Philemo had not been operating, the concept of, of communal villages didn't make any sense. And they looked an awful lot like strategic hamlets into yeah. which wow. the Portuguese had forced people during mm -hmm. the struggle to keep them from having contact with Filimo. Then you get the people who had to, were forced to create, to do certain things, were forced to grow certain things. Okay, so now there's independence. So what did they wanna do? Well, they wanna grow but they want to grow. They want to grow tomatoes or they want to grow something. They don't want to grow what the some person is telling them they have to do in a communal village. And then, of course, you don't have the ability to move goods from one part of the country to the other because you don't have a you don't have the structural conditions to do that, which makes both kinds of commerce really, really difficult. So there are all kinds of things that have to be considered. Um, and some of them are unique 
to the Mozambican experience, like the strategic Hamlet issue. Uh, I mean, I'm sure there are quite a few things that are unique to the Mozambican experience when we think about it more. Obviously, there are certain things that are more universal, but, um, but we can't really lose track of the experiences that Mozambique faced that led them to the point where they, you know, to that point in their historical existence. So I, I, I can't help myself, but jump in as, as an Americanist in the midst of this to say that Bobby, the story that you've just told reminds me of Willie Lee Rose's book, Rehearsal for Reconstruction, which details the conflict between self-emancipated African-Americans and the Sea Islands of Georgia and white missionaries and soldiers from the North who want them to grow, continue to grow cotton and show how efficient free agriculture can be growing cotton and the formerly enslaved people say, we want to grow food, yeah. fuck cotton, you know, yeah. we want to grow food. And so this is a kind of dynamic that clearly repeats itself uh, mm-hmm. through, throughout and history. In fact, in an, quite a few of the communal villages in Southern Mozambique, that's what they ended up growing was mm-hmm. cotton because, mm-hmm. um, because that would give them enough funds so they could buy generators and they could electrify their villages and and things like that. But still it was growing cotton, which is something that nobody wanted to have anything to do with ever again. Right. The same thing happened, by the way, in Haiti. Toussaint Uh Louverture. Yeah, he (laughs) wanted to keep growing the sugar. (laughs) It is newly free. No, 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 we don't want to grow sugar anymore. Right, right. So um, we've been at it for quite a while. Um, I want to thank everyone. Thank you. Um, and and I started us out tonight. Not everybody was yet on with with saying that this is a great example of scholar activism and how scholar activists think and operate. Um, and I'm really pleased that I think this conversation uh, tonight has been a really good embodiment of what scholar activism uh, can be. I want to thank Bobby and Alan for their work and giving us the reason to have this conversation tonight and August and Rose for joining us and everybody else. Thank you all so much. Uh, We will indeed be looking forward to the next book. Um, But in the meanwhile, let's encourage our comrades to read this one, um, which is of a very accessible size and language um, and a great way to start thinking about this. Um, Thank you all. Um, Stay tuned to the Eastside Freedom Library, hopefully for more embodiments of scholar activism. And I should say with Ricardo, artistic scholar activism. Peter, so just one point of clarification as a historian. Yes. The linkage to August going back to the early 80s. In the the mid 70s, August and I and Rose and other people were, were organizing in uh, uh, in the divestment campaign against 3M, wasn't it 3M? Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, control, control, control data. Control data, and they yeah. tried to disrupt our protest. So anyway, it's yes. a long and important history, you guys. So thank you all very it much is. for your comments. We're on a long yeah. journey. Yep. Yeah, right. so I want to thank you too. This was a fascinating discussion. And 
and and we really value and we really value peter the work that you do and the work of the freedom library so thank, thank you. you thank, thank you. you so much it takes a lot of us together thank you very okay. much okay. stay bye well you say mozambique right <laughs> The struggle continues. Aluta continua. Indeed.